This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. For information on any of the services we talk about on the show, go to sands-trustee.com or call 1-800-661-3030 for a free consultation and to find an office near you. Now, we're going to talk with Blair about Uh, personal bankruptcy and consumer proposals, those two topics. But specifically, it's kind of interesting, I found, Blair, Mm -hmm. that um, industry trends in this province say that personal bankruptcy filings are down, Mm -hmm. but consumer proposal filings are up. So can you answer that question, or should we talk about each piece, sort of briefly define it, and then go into why why is there such a difference? Yeah, I think let, let's go and let's you know let people know what we're talking about as as we go forward here. So you know, in terms of when people come to see a trustee, you know, typically that's when they've realized they got more debt than they're able to pay off, and then they're starting to look at the options that are available to them. And the mix of options hasn't really changed. You know, a trustee can help you with a personal bankruptcy if there's way too much debt and there's no reasonable way that you can pay off even a poor portion of it, bankruptcy makes a whole lot of sense, or a trustee can help you with a consumer proposal. And what a consumer proposal does is it stops all of the interest, and it's essentially a debt settlement plan where you're able to reduce the debts down to what you can afford, settle them for usually for about 30 to 50 cents on the dollar with no extra charges or interest fees, and then you make monthly payments over time. So the two things that a trustee can offer, a bankruptcy and a proposal, that hasn't changed, but there's been a massive change in the mix of those. And as you alluded to, Elaine, bankruptcies have really declined significantly in recent years where consumer proposals have grown like wildfire in the province of BC and beyond. So I don't get it. Why Why such a difference? Because we know folks are still facing uh, copious amounts of debt, having troubles dealing with it. Why is there such a difference between the two right now? Yeah, well, let's even, I'll even give you the magnitude because I think that that's huge because in the last five years, consumer proposals are up more than 53%, just in, in five years, 53% more people making those proposals, uh, but bankruptcies are actually down more than 40% just in, in the province of BC. So again, massive switch. One is, is growing like crazy, the other is declining. So why is the question? Yeah, why? Well, so a couple of reasons. So first off, in 2009, the government actually changed the law to make bankruptcy less of an attractive option, encouraging people to actually actually file consumer proposals instead. So previous to 2009, everybody that filed for bankruptcy, if it was your first time, you'd never been bankrupt before, it was going to last nine months, regardless of whether you made $5,000 a month or $500 a month, you were going to be in bankruptcy for nine months and you were going to have to pay back certain amounts based on your income. So a lot of folks, when they looked at, you know, I could be out of bankruptcy in nine months or I could potentially do a consumer proposal, which is probably going to take me two to four years, it was less of an attraction. Attractive option prior to 2009. 
what the government did in 2009 is they realized there's a lot of public policy benefits to people not going into bankruptcy as easily and perhaps giving them more of an encouragement to try to file a consumer proposal, which again is not a bankruptcy, it's a settlement arrangement. So what they did in 2009 is for anybody who's low income, and low income means you're earning less than roughly $2,000 a month as a single person um, that, you know, with no dependents, that's after-tax take-home pay, and that hasn't changed. So if you are low income, you remain in bankruptcy for nine months. However, if you're not low income, meaning you're above roughly the $2,000 a month, bankruptcy lasts a year longer now than it used to in 2009. Okay. So 21 months versus nine, more than twice as long. So that's a big factor causing people to look at consumer proposals is that bankruptcy is now more expensive and takes longer than it ever used to do. Okay. So the time is almost gotten a little closer if it went from nine months to now 21, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Compared to the consumer proposal. So... Um, why weren't people filing the proposals before, like before this time? What was the, was there one single disadvantage to doing that? You know, another factor also, another law change that they made is before they limited consumer proposals to $75,000 of debt. So if you had more than $75,000 of debt, you couldn't do a consumer proposal. Now, most proposals that we do, they're they're for less than $75,000, but the government actually increased that limit now. So a proposal can be done up to $250,000 of debt. So it's, again, it's much, much wider eligibility to do a proposal. I think a huge part of it, Elaine, comes down to awareness. So I think people had no idea consumer proposals existed. I barely knew they existed. And I was, you know, working in financial advisory services for many years, becoming a trustee. I had no idea this thing called a proposal existed. Now, since 2009, there's just been a massive groundswell of support from individuals who've done proposals. A proposal is typically something that we find a lot of our clients are happy about. They're proud that they figured out this solution, that they didn't have to go bankrupt. They made an honorable settlement on their debts. They paid back what they could afford. They didn't, you know, just throw their hands up and say, hey, I can't pay back anything. So, you know, we find that there's a lot of word of mouth, a lot more awareness um, that proposals are an option. So people are coming into our offices better prepared than ever before saying, you know, I know I owe $40,000 of debt. Um, You know, I know if I go into bankruptcy, you know, probably the creditors aren't going to get a whole lot much back. So if I was thinking of a proposal for about a third of that amount, Mr. Trustee, how does that look? And most of the time, that's usually a good starting point, about a third of the debt. So the the consumer actually knows what they're looking for more so than in the past. Now, when the amount uh, that the proposal can look after that you're in debt, uh, that also sort of comes in line with the cost of things today because real estate would be the probably the most expensive thing you'll ever purchase right yeah so if you're in a if you're if you opt into a proposal versus bankruptcy and real estate state is involved, like your Mm -hmm. family home, there's a big difference in how those two things get looked after. Yeah, absolutely, Lane. So for a lot of folks, if they're, um, you know, they've got some equity in their house and they've got a bunch of debt, a consumer proposal is a much better option for them to consider than a personal bankruptcy, because quite often if someone goes into a bankruptcy, they're allowed an exempt amount of equity, but it's a low amount. Exemption means, you know, nothing happens to it. And in the province of BC, that exemption is between nine and $12,000. 
So if someone files for bankruptcy and they've got less than nine dollars to $12,000 of equity in their house, nothing happens to the house, everything's fine, they keep making their mortgage payments. However, if they've got more than that amount of equity in the house, well, then they've got a, a tough decision to make. It's either they've got to figure out how they're going to pay that equity back to the trustee over the terms of a bankruptcy, or the house might potentially have to be sold. And keep in mind, in a bankruptcy, everything is wrapped up, you know, typically in nine to 21 months. So if there's a lot of equity to pay back, it's going to be tough to do it in 9 to 21 months. That compares to a proposal where a proposal is over multiple periods of years, again, normally two to four years, and quite often a proposal will allow you to actually purchase that equity at the same you know price as the bankruptcy would have been, um, but you're able to keep the house, not go through the you know, the ordeal of, the, of the, everything you have to do in a bankruptcy. A proposal allows you to retain the house in more cases where a bankruptcy might not. Because if 9000 or $12,000 is the equity where it comes to bankruptcy, whether you have to sell the house or you get to keep it, in today's real estate asset, you know, values of the asset, that would be kind of a rare place to be that you've only put nine or $12,000 into your house or or paid, you know, gone towards paying for your house. Yeah. And that's, that's a huge challenge right now, Elaine. And that's a big driver of why bankruptcy rates have declined so much. You know, in the past year alone in BC, bankruptcies are down more, more than 10%. Um, You know, it's about 18% decline. And again, over 40% in the last five years, a big reason for that is the massive run up in house prices. So, you know, if someone had no equity two years ago, the house was fully mortgaged. Well, then prices went up a third last year and a third the year before. So a lot of folks are sitting on a lot of equity, which right. is, you know, hugely un- you know, fortunate and unfortunate. But yeah. if, you, if you've got a debt problem, it's unfortunate because what it means is, you know, to use an absurd example, if you've got a house, a million dollars with no mortgage and you've got $20,000 of debt, there's no way on God's green earth someone can reduce that debt from you. You've got more equity than what the debt is amounts to. Um, even when the numbers are smaller, the principal is still the same. So someone a year ago, they might have looked at their situation and said, okay, if I file for bankruptcy, I've got less than the nine to $12,000 of equity, uh, I would retain the house and that would be fine. If they delayed and now the house has went up and there's twenty or $30,000 of equity, that house could be in jeopardy. I think one of the most important things too, when you talk about the difference between bankruptcy and consumer proposals with your home, with real estate, is that if you do a proposal and your uh, home is included in that, mm-hmm. you that you don't have to lose your home, yeah. which makes a huge difference. Oh, ex- exactly. Huge. Yeah. So for anybody that, that's listening out there, if you're concerned, if you do a consumer proposal, you know, will you be, you know, defaulting on your mortgage, not able to renew, things like that? The answer is no. So a consumer proposal quite often, it makes people in a better situation to actually pay their mortgage every month because now we've reduced all those other bills, all the credit cards, lines of credit, student loans, and things like that. So you doing a consumer proposal, I've never had a client who couldn't renew their mortgage when it came up to renew, you know, as long as they're up to date and everything on that. Um, but yeah, generally a proposal is going to be a better situation to retain your house. It's definitely not the case that everybody in bankruptcy loses their house and you know right. nobody would lose it as long as you can pay the mortgage and if there's a minimal amount of equity. Where the challenge lies is if you've got more equity than the nine to 12,000 and you don't have the means to pay that equity out, meaning you're not earning a whole lot of money and all the money's locked up in your house, that can be a tough situation if it's a bankruptcy proceeding. If in a proposal with your with your home, does it change the formula at all? The the one that you originally came mm-hmm. to agreement with with the bank or the or the mortgage broker? Yeah. So when when a proposal is filed, whatever is agreed to at that 
point in time, that sticks. So if you did a proposal two years ago and your house was worth X and now your house is worth, you know, two times X because that's what happens in the lower mainland, you're not asked to pay any more on the proposal. Everything's frozen as the day that you filed. So that's a really positive thing. You know, the upside of, of your of your um, house is yours if you do a proposal. Um, on the other side, you know, if your asset values go down, you're, you don't get to pay anything less. So proposal freezes it at a point in time. Now, if someone comes in to do a proposal and they've got, you know, massive amounts of debt um, and equity that's almost of that same amount, if they've got $30,000 of debt and forty and sorry, and $20,000 of equity, they're not going to be able to offer a proposal for probably less than the value of their equity. So they do have to move kind of in lockstep. Okay. But in general, to retain your house, a proposal is usually your best option. Okay. Now, of course, we're talking about British Columbia, but how does it, how does that, the trends of the bankruptcy versus uh, proposals, how does that look across the country? Are we unique in that way? Or are we pretty much in line? Well, I compared us to Alberta and we're quite the opposite of Alberta these days. Um, so probably not a surprise given what's happened to the oil prices sure. there. But, you know, in Alberta, bankruptcies are up, you know, 15%. We're here, they're down 18%. You know, in Alberta, proposals mm. are up 23%. Um, you know, here they're, they're basically flat year over year. So, so what's happened in Alberta is big economic shock and a lot more people are visiting trustees. You're listening to Blair Manton with Sands & Associates. I'm Elaine Scollin. The show is called Dollars and Cents. Sands & Associates, experts in helping you get out of debt. For more information on any of the services we've talked about, go to the website, sands-trustee.com for more information. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. On the line with us right now is Shannon Sims. Uh, Shannon's a professional member of the Canadian Counseling and Psychotherapy Association. She's a, a certified counselor designation. She has that. She works with folks uh, in mental health, with mental health and addiction issues, uh, as well as problem gambling uh, and a qualified insolvency counselor. So she works with Sands and Associates, helping folks uh, in the counseling sessions that they provide as part of their consumer proposals. Thanks so much for joining us, Shannon. Thanks for having me. Now, I, in this segment, we're going to talk a little bit about um, emotion, the emotion or the emotional causes and impacts of debts and sort of the correlation between the two. I would think that anything to do with debt and debt restructuring or even just facing debt has a huge emotional charge to it. Absolutely. I don't think it would be a surprise for anyone to hear there's a range of emotional impacts attached to debt. Can you talk about and, and sort of describe the range that, of folks that you deal with? Uh, well, in my experience, the range would typically go from stress and anxiety to depression and hopelessness to feelings of shame and guilt, feelings of failure um, or of not being a good provider. Not being able to pay our bills can threaten our sense of safety and security, and it can also chip away at our integrity and our pride. Those are huge. That's a real foundation of, of a person's personality and, and who they are out there in the world. That's got to be an enormous strain on these folks. Absolutely. Very stressful. 
Yeah, and, and Shannon, I, I see it when, when clients come in the door. I can see the physical manifestations of, of their stress, you know, the, the words that you're saying, you know, where they feel, you know, ashamed and, and not a provider. I can just see that, you know, gentlemen who, typically gentlemen who, you know, you would think be, be walking proud, they are at the end. You know, they're very happy that they've solved the problem. But when they're coming in to ask for help, you know, people are typically their own worst judgments and uh, worst judges, and they often feel like they're the only people facing this, this mm-hmm. type of a situation. Mm-hmm. And I would say that's probably one of the biggest barriers to seeking help is feeling like they are alone and that they are, they've done something wrong or bad and feeling like they're going to be judged. Mm-hmm. And how do you, how do you take the, those issues on with these folks? Well, oftentimes it's normalizing their experience. Um, it's just helping people understand some of the drivers or motivations for their behavior, um, figuring out ways of getting themselves back um, under control or feeling like they do have some power um, and recognizing where the hope and possibilities exist in terms of moving forward and solving the problem, uh, which can be really important to have hope that it can be different. Can you give us uh, some examples of folks um, that you've worked with and sort of their story and how, you've, how you help them uh, turn it around a bit? Uh, well, sometimes I see people who have their spending habits have become problematic um, because it's been a way they have found that helps them escape the stresses of life for a while. Um, or sometimes it creates a feeling of excitement or being in control or feeling powerful in their life. So the spending actually becomes a form of medicating their emotions. Um, life transitions like an illness or a death, uh, loss of relationship, the feelings attached to that can oftentimes um, motivate people to find ways of soothing themselves that aren't always helpful. So, so people works. joke about retail therapy, but it, it's mm. it's a real thing. It's it's not a joke. Absolutely, there mm. are brain changes um, that occur over time as people engage in this behavior and find it has a soothing or calming effect on them, um, and it, they become highly motivated to continue to engage with it, even in spite of the consequences it's creating. Yeah, the re- retail therapy um, idea and then overspending as a result, that doesn't, how you've described it, it doesn't sound any different than uh, any other kind of uh, uh, feel-good thing that we do to try to soothe ourselves. Absolutely, yeah. So many addictions can be thought of as a way of managing or avoiding emotions. And so spending in the same way that substance um, addiction uh, can become the same animal for some people. Wow, can you can we, can you talk about uh, the ways that we could, if if this idea is uh, sounds familiar to uh, someone who might be listening, uh, is there some things that we can do or that that person could do to? Uh, I don't know. I mean, what what do you do? Do you pause, rethink? I mean, sometimes we don't even get that option. Hmm. So in terms of, eval- do you mean evaluating whether this is becoming a problem yeah, or ways of reducing the harm? Both would be great, Shannon, because both of those sound really valuable to hear. So in terms of awareness, whether this is becoming a problem or not, time, energy, money, motivation, and consequences are the areas to be mindful of or curious about. Um, A sense of preoccupation. How much time do they spend thinking about, planning, preparing, engaging in the behavior, and then sometimes lying about or hiding the signs from loved ones or people they care about? Obviously, spending more than can be afforded. 
um, buying things that aren't needed, or losing track of time and money spent while engaged in the behavior can be red flags. Tracking emotional investment in the activity, if it's motivated by a desire to modify one's mood, either by creating positive feelings like excitement or distracting or escaping from negative feelings, and then a range of consequences are usually at play. This is more than just financial, so spending more than can be afforded is a big is a big piece of the puzzle, but consequences can also be relational, so other people in one's life have concerns about the behavior or it's impacting them in a negative way. Emotional consequences like the aftermath or hangover effect, that buyer's remorse, um, feeling guilty afterwards, or irritable if one can't engage in the behavior, and then social consequences. So if shopping or spending money is the only thing that people want to do, um, other forms of entertainment and socializing are kind of going by the wayside. That's so fascinating, Shannon. Just just as I'm hearing, because Elaine and I we talk a lot on this on the show about financial literacy, and you know my my thesis is often well, if people you know just knew more about what interest is costing them, and you know about proposals, if financial literacy w- was better, that would solve a lot of money problems. But it sounds like there's a whole other side to this. You know whether it's emotional literacy is the wrong word, but there's understanding the emotional triggers and the spending. Um, it's yeah. in in some ways, and I've, I've had clients in, in my office, you know, very much similar to what you've described. They're well aware. They're very financially sophisticated folks who know, hey, this interest is bad and I'm not going to be able to pay it back. But oftentimes there's other factors at play, which is what I'm, I'm hearing you describe here almost, you know, as, as an addiction. Yeah. So the spending is oftentimes meeting important needs. It's not the needs that are the problem. It's the way people are meeting them that becomes problematic. Hmm. All right. Well, let's, can we move then to the next piece of that is how do you, how does one manage those impulses, those overspending impulses? Let's focus just on the overspending part. How do you, how do you manage that? I think there's a couple of pieces to be aware of. One of the main ones is awareness. So we can't change what we aren't aware of. Being able to map out a particular cycle of behavior, we tend to be creatures of habit. Um, So mapping out what was going on for us at the time the thoughts or the urge to shop or spend money entered my mind, identifying some of the triggers or the drivers for the behavior. For instance, um, boredom, conflict with somebody, frustration, or even positive triggers, wanting to continue celebrating or rewarding oneself. Another key is being able to buy ourselves time, so not letting the urge or the emotion run our show keeping our reasonable brain engaged, just like managing any other type of an urge. Nature of urges are they build like a wave over about 7 to 10 minutes. If we don't give in to it, it will reduce. So if we can find ways of distracting ourselves, buying ourselves time, putting it off for five minutes at a time, um, calling, texting a friend, singing along to a favorite song, pulling out a word search, things of that nature. Wow, a, that's amazing, Shannon, seven to ten minutes. That, that's, yeah. I've never heard that before. All right, so if you're quitting smoking or wanting to cut down on caffeine or sugar, that's the nature of an urge, builds about ten to seven minutes. So if we can mm. resist it, it will reduce Right, it's wow. not going to be there forever. Yeah, both, both Elaine and I, we, we looked, the jaws dropped, and like, okay, that, that's something that we really want to focus on things our listeners can use, and I, I think that's huge, and I think even both of us will, will use that. So yeah. Yeah, you don't have to fight the battle all night, but if you can get through the first mm. seven to ten minutes, probably your brain's going to move on, right? 
Absolutely. Because, yeah. And because those seven to 10 minutes can be pretty intense, uh, you know, when you're trying to uh, start a new behavior or, or get rid of a bad behavior and, and do something new when you really want, I know I'm just thinking about myself here, when I really want something, whatever it is, regardless of what it is, mm-hmm. uh, it feels like, nope, nothing's going to get in my way of, of me getting that. That's right. So urges can be very uncomfortable, and there is a point of no return where if I don't, if I don't distract enough from it, eventually the brain chemistry will change, and I'm going to give in. Um, so that's the key: is just noticing when it's starting and how to, to distract yourself from it. Is there a couple of tips uh, to eat just to even just begin that process of? of noticing, of that, just that beginning of awareness uh, to sort of not necessarily nip it in the bud, but just be aware that, oh, oh, that's what, that's what Shannon was talking about. This thing right now that I'm thinking about. Are there a couple of tips or, or, or ways to do that? Well, self-talk is, a, is an important factor. So just noticing what, what your brain is telling you, what the stories are, what the stories are being told in the brain, as well as the body is a great uh, messenger. So just noticing the discomfort or the disease, the unease that comes up when people are starting to feel um, the urge occur. Urges occur in the body. So generally we will have thoughts that if we don't distract from will create or contribute to an urge. Um, Or sometimes the urge can be set off by a cue like something in the environment Um, So driving past the mall, hearing an ad on TV. So noticing in the body the discomfort that starts to come up and then noticing where your thoughts are taking you when when it does happen and then being able to shift your thinking. Right. Yeah, ideally to be able to stop and and then remember it's 10 to 7 minutes that that's how long that's going it's going to feel that intense. Oh, such good information, Shannon. Thank you so much. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin along with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates who are experts in helping you get out of debt. We'll be back with more right after this. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. Derek Dodds is on the line. He's a senior technical consultant with over 19 years' experience in information technology. He's currently offering IT solutions for a variety of industry, including banking, trust, telecommunications, and gambling, with the company IOSecure, one of the top Cisco partners in British Columbia. Welcome, Derek. Hi there. Thank you. Uh, now, I'll just start things off with a bit of a question. I mean, I'm not saying anything that's revolutionary. We live in an incredibly large online world, and uh, I'm just a regular person who does my own personal stuff. But for businesses, oh my gosh, the amount of information and the amount of work that businesses have to do today to uh, um, just keep out of the reach of scams or security risks is just enormous. Yes, there's so much reliance now on the internet uh, for for revenue for so many different businesses, mm-hmm. and uh, it is a concern. And, and Derek, you know, you hear oftentimes of you know customer breaches or data breaches or things like that. What are the types of business assets that are are vulnerable? If someone's listening out here and they've got they've got their own business, um, you know, what types of things do they need to be very concerned about potentially from a technology risks point of view? 
the data that generally we have to uh, have the most consideration for is customers' personal information. Right. We're talking about name, address, date of birth, and you know, credit card information. You know, mm-hmm. where we can, when we've got that data stored um, on our business servers, you know, where we can, we want to encrypt that. Right. And are there other things? So customer data, credit card data, I'm, I'm thinking for, for our business, you know, there are things, you know, very detailed legal procedures and, you know, marketing plans and, and things like that. So um, I guess you want to encrypt everything? Well, no, sort of, you, you have to take a balanced approach with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's looking at how we can, you know, best protect the business. And generally, we're looking at uh, a de- defense in depth. Um, we, we don't want to just rely on an antivirus uh, piece of software or just a firewall on the edge. You know, we, we need uh, technology that's more intelligent uh, and the ability uh, to what we refer to as a next generation firewall. Um, and what we can see there is we're intelligently blocking known uh, propagators of um, malware and the likes of. So uh, it's it's looking at that. So we have uh, not only an uh, antivirus software, um, uh, a good firewall, and uh, quite possibly we um, we also recommend looking at uh, a DNS provider. So if someone sends you an email with a a nasty link in it, it may have a URL um, to a website, which is, uh, we have recorded knowing being uh, uh, from hackers. Uh, And that can be blocked before, you know, we don't even return a response on how you get to that website. So, Hmm. Like a a blacklist of sites then? Yes, absolutely, yes. Right. And the amount of work that it takes today to uh, battle, I mean, every time you you guys come up with something that, yes, uh, to a client that, yes, this will work, yes, this will work, this will do this, this, and this, the bad guys on the other side of it are then expanding their arsenal to, oh, no, we're going to include this now, and uh, we'll see who's able to uh, combat uh, this particular bug or virus or whatever. I mean, it's endless. It's endless, Derek, the amount of work that goes on in this. Yes, yes. We we have to be smart about the policies as well. Um, we, we should not uh, accept customers' private information, for example, over email, because by default, it's a non-encrypted method of transmission, and it can pass through multiple servers, you know, from leaving your customer until it gets to you. So uh, it's like thinking about how we operate um, our policies as well as uh, the technology we have to ensure, you know, the integrity of that data. Derek, one word that I've heard a lot in the last few months, and, you know, definitely it it strikes fear into my heart as a business owner, is ransomware. Can you give me a sense of what we're talking about there and how much of a risk it is? Yes. So um, ransomware is is generally coming along where uh, someone has sent you uh, a link to generally um, a piece of code that is encrypting uh, pretty much a lot of the information that uh, is on your 
could be a local hard disk, could be a networked hard disk. And then, you know, they're not decrypting unless, giving you a decryption key unless you uh, supply them with that fee. Um, so, so I've opened uh, an email that I shouldn't have opened. Maybe it looked, you know, very legitimate. But if I understand you right, I clicked on something and now that code has went and locked all of my files up? That's, that's uh, how it uh, can impact you, yeah. And wow. Again, prevention for, for this is uh, having your, making sure your uh, machines, your servers, your workstations, all patched up to date. Make sure you've got the latest antivirus software running. Uh, make sure it's up to date. And then, you know, if you, you have an intelligent firewall, making sure that uh, it's getting the product updates as well. And that's going to really help reduce risk. So if you're ever getting those, you know, do you want to accept this update now or later? You're saying, you know, now is the right answer all the time. Make sure your softwares are always up to date. Yes, absolutely. Right. It adds to the operational overhead. You know, you're right in the middle of something yeah. uh, generally when it happens. But uh, when it's, uh, you know, when you have time to it, it's, it's best sooner rather than later. How will you know if you've been attacked? Um, well, in the case of the ransomware, um, you, you find out the hardware once once your uh, system has been encrypted, uh, and there's not a lot you can do at that point. Um, but uh, again, what what I spoke about prevention is the best method here. Having uh, these technologies kept up to date, um, patching and uh, virus updates to uh, ensure the best chance of uh, not getting uh, getting hit by this. And it sounds like, Derek, too, in, in, a, in so many, uh, in the way you've described it, is the things that a company can do are, are virtually the same things that a, a, a small business person or a, an independent business person who's just working from home needs to do. Yes, yes. Uh, we have to be smarter about it. It's, you know, more and more uh, people are getting smarter about it trying to trick you into opening something that looks like it's from a colleague. It looks like it could be from your boss. Um, yeah, uh, it, it's not just uh, large companies that are uh, being impacted. It's uh, all, all ranges. It all feels like we're a bit too vulnerable these days, I think. Yeah, yeah, uh, <laughs> no, and I know you. Been, I'm sorry, Derek. <laughs> I, I, no, actually, I was just reading um, about uh, a business that was operating uh, out of Burnaby, uh, and they had to close down last year um, because they, you know, there was it had such an impact on uh, their business, and they were they were a small uh, retailer, um, and you know it. When this happens, it can have such an impact on your business uh, from, you know, the marketing side. But word gets out, you know, that um, your business isn't safe uh, to, to put your online, your credit card information into online. And that has, that can be devastating for, for uh, you know, for business. Sounds like the most important thing that we can all take away from this is be aware. Make sure your stuff is all up to date. Thanks for joining us, Derek. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. For more information on how to get a financial fresh start, the number 1-800-661-3030 for a free consultation and to find an office near you. We'll be back with more right after this. 
Thanks for joining us. You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. Get a financial fresh start by calling 1-800-661-3030 for a free consultation to find an office near you. We're talking about what not to do when you're facing debt with Blair. So there's probably a list of things. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, man, it's hard to think of the, the most important things to start with when you're facing debt. What are they? Well, you know, the, the first thing is probably just to even realize your limitations sometimes in that moment because, you know, quite often you've never been in the situation before when you realize you've got more debt than you're able to pay. Maybe the collectors are calling you morning, noon, and night. Maybe there's someone threatening court action. Maybe you're feeling really depressed about the whole situation. You may not have all your faculties about you. So what what you really need to be careful of is that you don't do things that you think, you know, maybe it's the right thing to do, but they actually come back and really bite you in the long term. I would think, too, just um, knowing that this is going to happen, that I'm going to start getting phone calls or I'm Mm going to start getting those letters. That would be so stressful. Oh, yeah. The anxiety can be all in, all consuming, yeah. right? Just, overwhelming. Just, you know, we're generally all honest people. We know yeah. that we've borrowed money. We know we've spent money. And just to not be able to pay something back when you promised that you would, you know, that's a big shock to anybody's ego. And I think that's a key uh, key point too, is that people don't, nece- don't or I would think, rarely do this on purpose. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. There's, there's different circumstances that lead us down that path. And then once we're down there, that feeling of get of stuck, what do I do now, would come up. Yeah, you know, maybe there's a few cases of, of abuse and generally they're, they're caught and they're publicized, but the vast majority of people have just been honest but subject to some unfortunate events. It could happen to anybody. Yeah, and, let, and let's face it, it's pretty expensive to live mm-hmm. these days, depending on where you're living costs are exorbitant. Oh, yeah. And, you know, we, we've seen it in our practice, you know, even since 2010, just the number of folks that are coming in spending more than 50% of their income on rent, more than 50% of their take-home income is just going straight to the landlord before they've started to live. Right. And if you're not renting and if you've got, and you overbought mm-hmm. either a condo or a townhouse or a, a single detached, um, that's just crazy overwhelming oh, yeah. thought because yeah. you've got your family in there and and now you realize oh, yikes and you start to think well i can afford the mortgage at two percent but we're not going to be at two percent forever so you know at, at some point if you start to, to kind of stress test it yourself when rates go up yeah there you could be over mortgaged overbought essentially yeah. yeah um you mentioned here paying off family debt first. Mm-hmm. What did you mean by that? So that's a huge mistake to, to avoid. Okay. So if you owe a bunch of people money, you owe MasterCard, Visa, the tax man, and you owe your, your brother or sister or your parents, the worst thing you can be doing is to give preferential treatment to those members in your family. Now, we all know that that feels right in the situation, Absolutely. you know, borrowed money from my brother, I want to pay him back. And, you yeah. know, Visa or MasterCard, they didn't grow up with me. I don't have the same loyalty. Right. Um, but what happens is that if you eventually need to restructure your debt, you know, either doing a proposal, ideally, or even a personal bankruptcy, any amounts that you've paid to family that would be in a preferential basis, meaning that, you know, if you spread the money around and your family was owed 10% of the amount of the debt, but you gave them 90% of your payments, got it. that's going to come back to you negatively to the point that essentially those payments, you'd have to make them again to your other creditors. So it doesn't help you in in solving the problem. The better way to do it would be before you start to pay things disproportionately, have a conversation with a professional and figure out, okay, do I have to, you know, 
require that mom and dad or brother or sister take a little bit of short-term pain now, but that's going to be better for everybody in the long term because maybe in the future, you know, I can help them out. So you, so you would then advise people to include that family debt, that mm-hmm. money that you owe family members, with your whole debt picture, exactly, and, and keep them in the group. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's interesting. I yeah. hadn't, yeah, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, because what that allows your your family to do as well is if you we're going to be restructuring the debts using a consumer proposal and everybody's going to be getting back 30% of the debt. Well, if you've only got a certain amount of money to pay and if you don't disclose your family debt, they don't get that share in the 30%. Right. So they're actually better off participating in the consumer proposal because they'll get some payments out of it. They'll get something at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, getting a cosigner, not mm-hmm. a good idea. Almost always a very bad idea. Hmm. Okay. The reason is um, that if you default on the loan, the person who's co-signed the loan, they're not liable for 50% of the debt or two-thirds or whatever. They're liable for 100% of the debt. So the amount of folks that we have come through our doors at Sands & Associates where we go through and we explain all all the debts that we can restructure and I can help anybody who's, you know, they've got a debt that's co-signed with somebody else, but the person who is also on that debt, if my client does a proposal or a bankruptcy, um, the bank who is owed the money is going to go directly to the co-signer and start to demand full payment. So all you've usually done there is enlarge the problem. Now it's not only your debt problem, it's yours and your mom and your dad or, or somebody else, or, you know, even if they're not related, just another co-signer. And it's somebody that, you know, they're going to now be on the hook for a debt that wasn't necessarily there. Okay, so what if I am a co-signer? What if I have helped somebody out, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden they're in a in a, a situation that they need assistance? Go to you. What what what's my role then as a co-signer of a of a a, a, a part of that debt? Well, you, you don't have a whole lot of power in, in that situation. Mm-hmm. So what I would say your best bet is to just stay in very close contact with the individual who's you know going through the proposal or the, okay. or the bankruptcy, because during the time that they're restructuring their debts, they can't pay you anything preferentially. So sure. you're on par with everybody else. Now on a long-term basis, yeah, if they wanted to you know keep you whole on a long-term, they could potentially do that, but there's going to be a period of a couple of years where they're, they're not allowed to make any payments to you outside of what you wouldn't be outside of what you would get if they were in a bankruptcy or a proposal. Okay. Um, if I've co-signed, if I've co-signed a loan that this mm-hmm. person has gotten from the bank mm-hmm. and that goes into that, yep. that, uh, portfolio or file or proposal, yep. how, do, what, how does that work for me? The bank's going to be sending you a letter saying that so-and-so has now done a consumer proposal, for example, and we're no longer going to follow up with, um, so-and-so, but you now owe this money 100%, please make arrangements to pay us. Oh, yikes. So that's not the answer I was hoping for. It's not a good story, right? Wow. And that's why sometimes, you know, people are flailing about and then the bank says, you know what, okay, we're going to consolidate all of your debt, but just get someone else to co-sign on that. Right. And what you've just done is enlarged your debt problem to include somebody who, you know, hopefully... They've, they've thought through what, what they're doing here, but many times people co-sign thinking that it's never going to be called upon. The person's obviously going to pay the debt off. The message here is if you co-sign, be prepared that you are on the hook for 100% of the debt. Okay. Uh, uh, cashing in RRSPs. Mm-hmm. Not a good idea. No, the the worst thing you could, you could possibly do to compromise your potential future retirement. Wow. So the federal government exempts RRSPs in their full amount. You can never be forced to cash in your RRSPs to compromise your retirement unless you choose to do it yourself. 
Right. So if you're facing a ton of debt and you know, you've know you got more than that amount of debt in RRSPs, you might think you're doing the right thing by saying, okay, I'm going to cash in the RRSPs, I'm going to clear off all the debt, and then I'm going to start to save again. Yeah. I mean, I, to be honest, that's kind of what I would think to do. I, mm-hmm. You know, I owe this money. I have this money over here yeah. that I've been saving. It only makes sense to clear my conscience and, and pay off these people to mm-hmm. use that money. But yeah. you say, no. no. So two really big reasons why. So number one is you're going to take a, a tax hit when you cash in the RRSPs. So the financial institution is going to hold back somewhere between 10 and 30% of those funds because when you contributed them, you got a tax break at that point. Sure. So you're not going to get the full amount out. And oftentimes you end up with a tax bill at the end of the year because whatever the bank withheld wasn't enough because you had other income. So potentially you're going to get less money and owe some taxes, but usually it's not enough money to solve the complete problem. You know, you're just, you know, putting a a drop in the bucket, and then you don't have your retirement there when you actually need it. What I want to encourage people to do is think about RRSPs as a pension, right? You can't touch your pension fund. No one can cash it in for you. No one can take it from you. It's there for you when you need it. If you consider your RRSPs the same way, the government has given you that protection. It's only if you choose to pull it out yourself and pay it to debts do you frustrate that protection for yourself. Okay, so the last, so that would be one of the last things to do then, yeah, or, I, or not at all. I would say not at all, not at all, because you could literally have hundred thousand dollars in RRSPs, right. have a significant amount of debt, and even if you had to go through a bankruptcy because you're just not earning much money, you will emerge emerge from that bankruptcy with the same hundred thousand dollars of RRSPs. Got it. Cool. Okay. Uh, paying for debt advice. Yeah. So. In general, you never have to pay anybody to figure out your financial options. So when you sit down with a trustee, it's a free initial consultation. We're not here to judge you. We're here to help you figure out the way forward. So when someone comes in and meets with us at Sands & Associates, we spend about an hour for the first meeting. We go through all the debts in a good amount of detail. We understand all of the assets and we give you advice on everything, whether something's at risk or not. Most people end up keeping all of their assets if they even go through a bankruptcy, let alone a consumer proposal. But that entire meeting, all of that analysis is free. It doesn't cost you anything to figure out what you're going to do to solve your debt problem. Okay, then once I put together the proposal or the plan to uh, to pay off my debt, uh, then how does that work? Because I, you have to be paid for your work because this mm-hmm. is significant work, and I wouldn't I wouldn't be in a better position without your help. So right. how do you get paid? Yeah, so a trustee is compensated based on whatever if you file a bankruptcy or a proposal, whatever the government says you're required to pay. So if you were to do a consumer proposal. Proposal, say you had $20,000 of debt and we reduced it down to $6,000 and you were going to pay it off over a five-year term at $100 per month, you would pay your first payment when you file the proposal and you would pay again once the proposal has been accepted, which Got is it. normally about two months later. So to deal with the $20,000 tax or tax issue, any type of issue, any type of debt issue, you'd meet with us a number of times. The only time you'd pay anything is when we filed the legal documents. And the only thing you would pay is whatever your monthly payment is. You pay that once to get us starting to work for you. Cool. And then, and then I'm on my way. Then I'm on my way to get my debt cleared. Exactly. You're going to get your debt clear and we're going to give you counseling so that it doesn't happen again. You're going to meet with us two times for counseling, no matter what you do. That's awesome. Thank you, Blair. For more information, check out Blair. Blair Manton's website, sands-trustee.com with Sands and Associates. Uh, You can book your free consultation as we talked about with one of the experts. Start living a debt-free life. Sands and Associates has 15 offices on the Lower Mainland and one in Victoria on Vancouver Island.
The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.